Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't offer any knowledge content related benefits to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. If we get more money than we need, we'll be donating it to good causes and we'll keep you in the loop on that. We've also started a new mini-series focused on peripheral stuff for our Patreon folks that are tied around some subject areas correlated to core content of the podcast. So we'll be talking about things like Cottagecore and what's so goddamn awful about it and Joel Saladin and what's so goddamn awful about him. Dialogues about detangling efficiency and productivity from profitability and some conversations about our seasonal practices, foraging, planning, and so on. If that sounds interesting to you, for $2, you'll get some mini-series and mini-episodes, stuff like that, and we'll be able to support this podcast for you guys. So here's a quick taste of it. Despite the fact that all these things have existed, um, Times Magazine uh, named Joel Salatin the world's most innovative farmer, and at no point has he ever come out and said, hey, I wasn't even aware of these things, or I was aware of these things, or anything like that, but there are other people that have done it before me. He just kind of ignores that and, you know, basks in the glory of being Mr. Farmer and the rock star of uh, regenerative agriculture. Yeah, uh, so I think there's something implied there. They're basically saying he's the first to do it in America, so it's innovative. I don't think they're going to count anybody from Zimbabwe. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. And if so, head on over to Patreon. And for $2, you can get access to all of it. I believe the next one that we're going to be doing is going to be on the hogs of Chernobyl, which is going to be interesting because essentially they took domesticated pigs. And when everyone abandoned the area, they went feral. And uh, yeah, we will talk about what that means in terms of like what pigs can survive on, which I think is a pretty cool subject. So there's not much up yet, but we will be adding to it at least once every two or three weeks at the latest. Clearly, we enjoy making this content, and for our traditional episodes, there's not an insignificant amount of work that goes into each episode, as evidenced by the sources listed in each episode. So any support we can get to offset our actual cost, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly useful in helping us both get ranked higher in algorithms used by iTunes, uh, meaning more listeners, which also gives us the opportunity to start drawing in folks for interviews, uh, which we would both love to do, and I think you guys would benefit as well, because there are areas that I'm not super confident, and I'm sure Elliot isn't as well, uh, where a, a specialist can definitely speak to some of these subjects better than we can. We'll actually be having a guest on our show in about four episodes. Historian and comedian Nash Flynn will be here to chat with us about the Irish Civil War called The Struggles, the most Irish name ever, and how that might be a good model of what we might see happen here in the United States as things continue to deteriorate throughout the Trump presidency and what may become the Biden presidency. Uh, we've been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work you guys do by giving us reviews and telling other folks about us, and that's awesome. We'd like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. That page has also been growing exponentially, which is pretty cool. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and ecological history. 
as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical guidelines that we find interesting, and, of course, memes. And if this is your first episode, we highly recommend going back to the first episode of this mini-series, at the very least, and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. That said, I know some folks have reached out to us explicitly about this episode because we've been dropping hints about it forever, simply because with COVID, we've just had a hard time getting together. Um, So we're finally here. This is the fourth episode of our mini-series we've called the Reimagining Series, and it's an opportunity for us to not focus on skills or knowledge or anything like that, but use history as a tool to learn from our past mistakes. Since the concept of this podcast is the current state structure that is dissolved or collapsing, we are not held to the various hierarchies and debts that exist today, and we have the opportunity to reimagine how we use the world as it is today for the world we want, an authentic democratic society in which folks are not limited by capital or resource allocation. In this fourth episode, we're taking a look at the complex Zapatistas movement and autonomous zone in southern Mexico, which has been in existence for over 25 years, despite repeated attempt, attempted occupations by the Mexican military. The history of Chiapas, the region where Zapatistas originated, is long and complex, stemming from the original arrival of Europeans into the Mayan region over 400 years ago, and has a bloody history of repression. The region has been marked by the failure of globalism, and the spark that led the armed resistance is generally identified as NAFTA, North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, which decimated local indigenous farmers, literally overnight, where their traditional farming methods paired with the fact most parts of Chiapas did not have running water or electricity, could not compete with the industrial farms of the United States. We're going to look at the functional aspects of the Zapatista movement, which gives us some really good guidance on what an alternative communal system can look like. While they don't claim to be any type of system, that is, they don't claim to really be anarchists uh, or Marxists or Maoists, despite the fact that there is a significant role of those groups involved with what's happened in the Zapatistas region, also known as the EZLN. The ideas of these different types of systems were an important role in recognizing the historical context of the community at play and how those historical systems of economy and politics play into the application of communalist liberation. The focus within the EZLN is in giving the indigenous people the opportunity to both reclaim their heritage and liberate themselves through direct democracy and access to resources to create self-determination. If you're looking to read deeper into the subject in the areas we talk about, for example, of resistance to global capitalism, the main texts we reference in this episode are The Zapatista Reader, edited by Tom Hayden, which is a really good text for a framework of what's happened there and what led up to the Zapatista Revolution, and Hilary Klein's Campaneras, Zapatista's Women's Stories, which provide us with a lot of the information on what the day-to-day living situations are there particularly in how they operate their direct democracy. Hillary Klein's text in particular uh, highlights the actions and goals that give way to what seem to be impossible, autonomous, directly democratic zones, which cast away the reins of global capital and state power. Our focus instead is on looking at specific areas where they have been extremely effective at utilizing their limited resources in order to drive effective resistance and the ability to stay autonomous and self-sustaining over the last 25 years. Reflecting back on the most recent episode of the miniseries on community self-defense, we see this as a functional role in the Zapatista movement, which we'll cover quickly. While the revolution began upon the first day of the NAFTA Treaty, January 1st, 1994, not a single bullet has been fired since by the Zapatistas, 
following those first two weeks of revolution. Subcomandante Marcos, the well-recognized ski-masked voice of the Zapatistas, has articulated that they have no interest in shedding blood, but will defend themselves, and in the few shots taken, those shots were heard around the world. Words are now their weapons, he says. Despite this resolute position on nonviolence, the Zapatistas are almost always seen ski masks on, weapons over the shoulder. The threat continues to exist of the Zapatistas' ability to defend their homes. The interesting thing we find in particular about the Zapatista revolution is that they clung to no powerful, ground-shattering strategy for their success in losing the chains of the state. They simply used their weapons to declare themselves into existence, to be heard. And with their voices, they have managed to steer their own course in history. Yeah, so I think it's worth talking about a little bit um, how the Zapatistas, despite seeming like they shouldn't exist, Mexico, I think, has the eighth largest army in the world. Uh, and despite that, they managed to create their own autonomous space. A big piece of that is the PR component of them being able to articulate their justification for existing the way they want to exist. Uh, which I think gets lost in a lot of conversations about this. Generally, across the spectrum, right and left, people support the Zapatistas when they hear about it, which is interesting because if you're looking at the raw evidence, they're pretty much an anarchist community um, with their own nuance based on the historicity of the area uh, and the self-guidance of the indigenous people there. Despite that, uh, they have an overwhelmingly positive support or view from the rest of the world uh, and it's largely because of Marcos and it's largely because they were able to articulate a very simple easy to identify enemy in very simple terms that's hard to challenge in that this global system the global north the United States is destroying our way of life and uh, I think it's hard to articulate a cohesive position against that. And I think that gives us a really good understanding of what this kind of situation might have to look like in the future should uh, autonomous zones come to existence in some place like the United States. Right. And I think we've talked about it several times on uh, this podcast before um, in examples like Katrina, when Scott Crow went down to Louisiana to help out his friend in need who sent him a, a SOS message saying, you know, we need help to fight for our, our human rights. Same thing when we mentioned with Rojava, we've also talked about. And the, we'll talk about in, Roj- Rojava more um, in probably two or three episodes. We are planning on uh, diving deeper into it, but we have mentioned it. We've also mentioned the indigenous tribes in Canada and how the Canadian government tried to do pretty much the same thing on a smaller scale. But it comes down to it and shows you that right and left agree with it because it's an in, excuse me, it's an inalienable right for humans to have their own self-determination and, you know, land ownership and property and, and private property come into play, but it should never squash. I think it also points to the need for good propaganda um, for movements because when there isn't positive, um, again, propaganda from an autonomous zone, that vacuum gets filled up by the other side, which happens repeatedly throughout history. And we've also kind of hinted at it, in particular in some of our memes that we've posted, about the necessity of uh, autonomous zones to cross the, the threshold between urban and rural, particularly for urban spaces where a lot of revolutions begin. Unlike this uh, one, well, in a sense, this one also was urban in some ways as well, I guess. Uh, even when we were talking about Kropotkin, uh, he talked quite a bit about the role of 
bridging that divide of in the conquest of bread, of providing people with the basic necessities, which come from rural spaces. And the Zapatistas are very focused on the idea of communal ownership of the farmland and uh, work people that know how to work the farmland land, so they don't have a fear of uh, food shortages and things like that, which is an essential framework or a building block for their success. Food security. Yeah. Um, so in building the systems locally, the EZLN, uh, that is the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, uh, began to organize groups back in the 80s focused on vague, noble aspirations which most of the poor peasants could support. For example, women's groups against alcohol consumption that was backed by the church was one of the initial organizational fronts to connect women across regions. Again, keep in mind this is an area that predominantly does not have running water, it does not have electricity. So having a way to get ideas and groups together and organized uh, across regions is a paramount challenge for these people. The basis of, of this idea, particularly against alcohol consumption, was that oftentimes farmers would be paid by landlords in alcohol and continue to bury in, into debt as they drank more and more. Very simple manipulation to create essentially a surf system. Liquor stores on every corner. Yeah, except the liquor store is owned by the guy that also pays you. And instead of paying for your alcohol, you're just like, oh, take it out of my paycheck. And a lot of times is also very explicitly pushed by farmers. So framing the outreach based on such topical subject areas allowed for networks to flourish and for the deeper goals of eliminating landlords and parasitic capitalist farm owners from the communities to take root. Other groups focused on common initiatives like indigenous farmer rights. The Zapatistas involved at the grassroots level knew perfectly well that these were front organizations for the EZLN. Others, however, joined these groups without knowing this. AMMAC, for example, included mestiza women from the cities as well as indigenous women from rural Chiapas. Conversations within the most marginalized people in the region, the poor indigenous women, directed the conversations regarding what was developed as the revolutionary laws, which provided the framework of how communities were expected to treat all of its citizens. In reality, at this time, women's rights were very much secondary, and you know that's not a, a unique condition of that region uh, across the globe that's always traditionally been a challenge. And giving women, uh, giving them that ability uh, also offered the framework to drive ideas because of their innocuous place within the community where the landlords weren't as fearful of women organizing the way they would be of men. So it was a uniquely, it was a unique opportunity for the EZLN to essentially spread propaganda and to build class or solidarity uh, across the indigenous people of the region. Um, sure. So it's an untapped resource of people who are ready to be heard, which is pretty much what this is about. And I guess they, they found a voice in being overlooked and underestimated. And it took, uh, I think the Zapatistas, the guerrilla soldiers have been in active attempts to uh, reclaim their land for since the 70s. So it took almost 20 years of organizing and community outreach to build, to cross the threshold of where they had enough power collectively to make any change, specifically meaning the 1994 uprising. So in terms of practical practice, when that uprising happened right after NAFTA was signed and uh, put into place, Zapatistas took land distribution into their own hands. Taken by surprise and unused to having their monopoly on power challenged, many landowners, landowners fled, leaving their land unoccupied and vulnerable. 
According to the Zapatistas who live there, what used to be single cattle ranches now support more than 500 families. The Zapatistas took over other large tracts of land throughout the eastern Chiapas. Exact figures are difficult to pin down, but data from the Mexican government suggests that in the first six months of 1994, the EZLN occupied around 60,000 hectares, about 150,000 acres, in the conflict zone. Years later, the Mexican government recognized that the Zapatistas occupied up to a quarter million hectares, or 618,000 acres, of land. Almost overnight, makeshift settlements appeared in what had been the region's most productive fields. Shocked cattle ranchers and coffee planters watched the invasion from afar. Over the next few years, the EZLN redistributed lands to thousands of landless peasants. Zapatista agrarian commissions were formed to oversee the distribution. Subsistence farming is always precarious. A whole season's crops can be wiped out by too much rain or too little. Zapatista villages on occupied territory generally have sufficient and much more fertile soil. As a result, these communities tend to have much higher level of economic and food security than the small plots of rocky mountainous land where the indigenous peasants used to live and work. So how did the Mexican government respond to this? To pacify the landed class, the government paid landowners for property seized by the Zapatistas. It also gave legal title to the land to non-Zapatista peasant organizations in an effort to wrest control of it away from the Zapatistas. The Zapatista response has been simple. They refuse to recognize the concept of ownership of land and offers anyone who wants to work the land with them to join them. Personally, this process feels like a page out of the American playbook, and this is how our current NGO system operates, that is, non-governmental organizations or non-profits. And I think we see this play out quite a bit here. There's a movement, and then there's a non-profit that springs up, and the movement becomes uh, defanged because it now has to play nice with the government to get subsidies and think pipelines, oil cleanup. Yeah, for um, every dollar that's spent, you think about like when nine eleven happened, how much money was raised, and how much of that money just disappeared. And now, what John Stewart five six years ago had to go in front of the Senate or whatever he went in front of to be like, you guys need to come up with money for these firefighters that are dying and you guys have run out of money supposedly for them. The fuck happened to all that money? Right. And, you know, I actually ran a nonprofit for a number of years and I saw this, the Bill Clinton Workforce Initiative Act, the his whole welfare reform uh, 19, around the same time in the mid 90s. The idea was to provide resources to help people get off of uh, generational welfare. And, like, it's not a bad idea to uh, try to get people motivated to have a meaningful work. However, what happens is that nonprofits generally try to follow the lines of capitalism in that every year it's expected that you have higher uh, returns on that same dollar. They want continued growth, continued everything, but they usually don't increase funding. So you went from, say, I would apply for a grant for $100,000 that would um, work with kids that were in high school considered at risk to um, not be successful, be on welfare, whatever bullshit t- language they use to be politically correct. Um, and it would be one year would be, okay, $100,000, that's for 20 students. The next year would be $100,000, that's for 30 students. And the next year would be $100,000, that's for 40 students. And, you know, those are kind of off the cuff numbers, but it got to the point where, like, no, we were all saying we had all these great. Um, effects in our community and nothing was changing. So we were just 
a lot of them were bullshitting their numbers and I get it because they wanted to, what little good work they did do. They wanted to continue funding, but we have to play this game of continuous, uh, never ending growth without challenging the reason. If we, if we teach poor kids how to be successful, that doesn't change the fact that somebody still needs to do the jobs that their parents were doing. That was why they were poor or whatever. There's, we, we talked about it a bit in the Kropotkin episode that our system is designed so that there are people that need to be poor to create a, a malleable uh, workforce that can come and go as they need and also to create the precariousness of the workforce so that they don't demand too high of wages. And that plays out also in the NGO world as well, uh, which just is incredibly frustrating for making any real change. Right. So it's running a nonprofit organization based on a profitable business model, which it's, it's like a self-defeating prophecy. Yeah. If your nonprofit is to eliminate an issue, then how can you eliminate an issue and put yourself out of a job? And perpetuate the issue at the same time. Yeah. It's like the ladder salesman. Like... A ladder lasts forever. Eventually, everyone's going to have a ladder, and you can't sell more ladders unless you make the ladders only last a certain amount of time. So you've created, you have to create that continuous need for work in some capacity. And it also sounds like somebody gets beat at the end. <laughs> yeah, and it also co-ops movements. Like if, if a nonprofit springs up because there's a need, first off, capitalism is not solving that issue clearly, and secondly, secondly, it's co-opting a movement of people that are focused on those real issues and instead of letting the people manage it independently it becomes under the thumb and gets co-opted by the government and capitalists that fund it to you know whitewash their the awful things they're doing to their communities there's plenty of time for more whining later yeah i mean the democrats are pretty much a really good example of co-opting progressive movements into becoming defanged things you can look at like obama running we're not we're not going there this episode. Ah, dude, we just had an election. I How know, can we not I, talk about it a little bit? All right. You want to? No, I just not really. Like we're going to get too sidetracked. Yeah, probably. Um, so, yeah, if you're listening to this, I don't have to tell you about how the Democrats are co-opt leftist movements. But th- this is pretty much along those same lines that the government in Mexico tried to use, to essentially divide the working class by saying these nonprofits that are supposedly there to help you now own the land instead of you if you acknowledge this then guess what you don't own the land anymore we're just going to slowly fucking kick you out so uh, let's look at uh what what the day-to-day life looks like a lot of times we always talk about those big picture theory stuff about you know so-and-so theorist says you know these are these really big picture ideas of what government should or not lack of government might look like what does it look like to have uh, flat systems where there's no hierarchy. How do we do this in practice? Uh, and then we'll kind of look at what they do and then kind of pull back and kind of look at what's going on in our world and see how pragmatic we can be about applying this on uh, in different conditions. So where does the voice that responds back to the state come from? Assemblies became a key element of the structure. Open to all adult members of the village, each community assembly makes local decisions and chooses local authorities. The regional assembly brings together all the local representatives from a given area to discuss regional concerns and select their authorities. Local representatives also act as messengers to and from the regional assembly. When they return from a regional meeting, for example, they convoke a local assembly to share any relevant information, decisions that were made, and proposals the community needs to discuss. 
A well-respected local representative is often promoted to be a regional coordinator. In Hillary Klein's Campaneras, she writes that, At the Comandanta Ramona Women's Gathering, a Zapatista woman from La Realidad described her role as a regional coordinator. It's our responsibility to organize the communities and encourage them. We visit the villages to see how the cooperatives are doing, to see if they are doing well or if there are any problems. If one of the cooperatives has failed, that's not a reason to give up. Quite the opposite. We put our heads together, the coordinators and the community members, to look for new alternatives and ideas to keep moving forward. We work together to solve problems, and when something has gone well, we share this information to the other coordinators from other regions. We also organize marches and sit-ins. If they try to kick us off our land, we organize ourselves immediately. We organize how many men and women will go and defend our communities, and we also organize parties to commemorate certain dates, like March 8th, International Women's Day, which is a significant date for Zapatista women. Men and women, children, young people, and elders all participate in these parties with songs, poetry, speeches, traditional dances, skits, and riddles. What it really comes down to, I think, without getting too bogged down in those details, is these layers of direct democracy in that everyone is explicitly required to be a participant in those democratic processes. And I think we're going to cover a little bit more in detail what that means exactly. But what we're seeing is that there's a very strong need and drive that everyone is involved so that there's no longer an issue like in this country, for example, where people just say, well, what are you going to do? That, that doesn't exist there. And these layers continue. Uh, the EZLN's highest body of political leadership is the CCRI, and individual members of the CCRI are called comandantes. Because they are called comandantes, outsiders often mistakenly think the members of the CCRI are part of the EZLN's military hierarchy. But the comandantes are civilians. They are Zapatista movement's political leaders. After proving him or herself, a skilled regional coordinator might be promoted to the CCRI by the regional or zone-wide assembly. For the indigenous people of Chiapas, community assemblies have historically been an all-important institution for making collective decisions about anything impacting the whole community. These assemblies are held in any available communal space. Discussions are informal and can be long because everyone has the right to speak until an agreement is reached. Zapatista cooperatives are the backbone of the local and regional economy. Once the autonomous government and systems of healthcare and education were up and running, these two become Zapatista infrastructure. Participation in the Zapatista movement therefore encompasses women's involvement in political affairs and the political life in general. Community decisions about healthcare, education, government, and so on. None of the Zapatista authorities are paid Holding a position of public responsibility is seen as a way to serve your community. They are, however, supported in other ways. A local representative from La Realidad explained, When the local representative goes to the regional meetings, the women make an agreement to support her by paying her bus fare. We have to travel more than eight hours to get to the meetings, sometimes up to 12 hours. And the meetings last for two, sometimes three days. The community makes an agreement that the women will support this person by taking care of her children, washing the clothes, donating tortillas to her family, carrying firewood to her house, and her husband also helps out by taking care of the house, the children, and the animals. So let's, let's think about how this plays out in American and urban and rural spaces 
and how we can reorganize our communities in the absence of state, given our access to better resources, technologies, and infrastructure that we already have in place. Much of this infrastructure in the EZLN was designed based on historical precedent within the Mayan region. Many of these structures reflect how small towns organized prior to settler colonialism arriving on their doorstep. So this is talking about that idea of historicity, of the role of the indigenous history and their understanding of what government should be compared to what it was, and then kind of fusing the idea of self-determination and non, I wouldn't even say non-government, but I guess non-placeholder government. They're still government, but they're treating it like we Americans think we have a civic duty by voting. They're actually treating their government as a civic duty where they go and speak for their zones and their regions. And when they're gone, all of their civic duties are, you know, being taken care of by the people that they're speaking for. Yeah, it's direct democracy, which I think is um, we... We, you know, we just had an election, and I hate to harp on this again, but at the end of the day, most of the things that we voted on in our election don't really affect us personally. You know, in Massachusetts, we had the right to repair bill that was part of one of the choices that affect that was on our ballots. And uh, I'm not a mechanic. You're not a mechanic. Right to repair doesn't significantly impact us. And for a lot of people that it doesn't really have a major impact on what your day-to-day life is. Not that it's not something that's important to be talked about, but it's not a direct democracy in the sense of I'm not voting in a room with the automakers who are trying to tell me this is a bad idea or the mechanics who are telling me that the right to repair is a good idea. We use the government kind of as a intermediary that is very static and just exists as a monolith. Whereas in some place like uh, Chiapas, the government is uh, a fluid, transient thing, uh, reflective of the people that live there. The government isn't like this thing that exists behind a wall. It's something that exists with them uh, collectively. And uh, I think that's what generally gets lost. And then when we try to think about how we can replay this back here in the United States, what do we look at as uh, the historical precedent for something like this that would provide us with a framework that we would build from that we feel comfortable with because it's not some foreign government that's trying to be pressed upon us, which is what happened in Chiapas is that uh, there's a lot of discussion about who Subcomandante Marcos is, and the general consensus seems to be that he was a Marxist professor in Mexico, and that him and some other professors that studied anarchists and uh, they were primarily uh, Marxists and Maoists uh, that went into Zapatista regions and tried to essentially say, hey, we're going to build class consciousness. And this is why like capitalism is destroying your area. And it didn't really work. And uh, he's come out and kind of said it in various interviews that like him and the folks that came with him had to sit down and learn from the locals to understand the, con- the material conditions and the historical conditions that were meaningful enough to frame up the way they were able to build community government. And we see that here where a lot of this is based on the precedent of how historically these communities have run. Trying to do that in a colonized space like where we live today is a challenge because there is no indigenous culture that we any of us can really attach ourselves to because we've pretty much wiped it all out. So what do we have for that historical condition that can guide that conversation for us? Anything from the American Revolutionary War onward, which is 
even before that, I mean, you think about, I guess, small towns and... Are you talking about like town charters and, and things like yeah, that? Yeah, I guess, because that's a direct democracy, uh, is like those small towns. I mean, and obviously they have problems, but much like the Mayan regions uh, the Zapatistas currently occupy, those had, I don't know what they're called exactly, kings or something like that. Do you know? Uh, chief, chief, I don't know. Chiefs, chieftains something. Are, yeah, I don't know. They were religious, so they yeah, they had like shamans and yeah, I they. The, the idea is that there was obviously it was what they're doing is not exactly what existed in history, but they're using that as a framework to dialogue what the day to day living is like, which I think is what we need to be more focused on instead of because when we try to do this like vulgar understanding of anarchism or Marxism or communism or communalism or anything. We get bogged down in these mundane details where the conditions of a region are the best way to have a system put in place instead of trying to make something plug and play where we're going to do the same thing everywhere. It's just it doesn't work like that. The world doesn't work like that. The whole point of ecological focus of the podcast is highlighting the fact that we can't just plug and play systems. We have to pay attention to the conditions of the systems. Excellent segue. Listen to our first episode on complex systems. And all the other ones. All the other ones too, but listen to that one first because we, we will always reference that one pretty yeah, much in everything that we talk about. Pretty much every episode at some point comes back to that. But yeah, so I guess my point is that you know, we're talking about this because we want to think about how, I mean, because it's interesting, first off, uh, it's a successful whatever kind of state or stateless community you want to call it but also that we should be able to learn from it. And we have a very challenging situation here in the United States of trying to figure out how we identify those historical conditions without appropriating any cultures that can provide a framework of what a a direct democracy can look like. And I think what you're saying, like those town charters are, they're a good starting point um, of what we could think of as direct democracy. The challenges that here in the United States, our work is disconnected from our community, which is not a, a condition there. Well, that's what I was going to say. One of the conditions is uh, direct democracy apparently has to start small because when you use the word representative, you're using that term more directly in this direct, like in the term direct democracy, where that representative is quite literally speaking for the entire, yeah, for that specific, you know, if we're talking town charter. Yeah. And, there's the relocalization of economy and work and community. I something I was reading about, like it was from like the ninth, early twentieth century about how communities didn't really exist anymore and nobody knew their neighbors. And I feel like we, our parents, say the same thing. Like, oh, back in my day, we used to know our neighbors. Historically, the, since the Industrial Revolution, that's always been a thing because the we talked about it a bit in the Kropotkin episode. The Industrial Revolution took people out of their, how am I trying to say this? Uh, It took them out, work was no longer localized in the sense that you didn't create something that was given to the community, whether it was through sale or whatever, but that you no longer have any authority over your production, your productive value. Because if you're just on a, uh, say, the Ford assembly line, and you're putting hoods on all day, you didn't make 300 trucks today, you moved 300 hoods. Uh, And that disconnect from labor both locally and communally meaning like locally as in the people you deal with every day and communally as in the region has been totally shattered right i think the word that stands out here is the socioeconomic impact of 
the industrial revolution and moving people it literally was the divide between rural and urban that we see today where it took away those people who are working getting up every day with the sun and working out in the fields and then coming home and doing their social thing and housework at night and then you have the 24-hour workday, uh, eight-hour shifts coming into play, and that completely turned all of that upside down. And those truck hoods are a commodity, but there's no say in how, how much value. So Does that make sense? Yeah, like farmers, we'll pick on farmers, I guess. Farmers don't get paid a lot of money. Most of them actually don't make money in, our, in the United States. Agriculture is heavily subsidized. And we kind of touched that on that in the uh, Joel Salatin prologue that most farmers are failing. I think it's something like 80% of farmers don't make money, uh, 80 or 90%. And he was selling this dream solution where you're doing something good for the environment and making money. And uh, it was just essentially snake oil. But our labor is disconnected from value. And our labor is also disconnected from uh, our community in terms of what our community needs. Yes, that's and what I'm trying to say. Our economy is designed to keep us too busy and too tired to be involved directly with any democracy i mean we're like we're going to take again look at the ezln and we're saying these people are directly involved in democracy a very time intensive democracy where you're going to meetings every week it seems like or every couple of weeks for hours and hours on end and they manage to have time and despite them being you know living in what might be considered third world conditions yet they're able to do these things that we can't do in the first world Right, but you look at the aspect where we have to have NGOs come out and beg people to get out and vote, but getting out and vote means you have to take hours out of work to go do it. There's no employer that I know that's going to pay for you to go vote. So that means you're losing wages for the day to exercise your democratic right. Which, again, is not direct because a lot of times those decisions, the reason why no one wants to vote in this country is because what, what happens from your voting doesn't really affect your day-to-day -day life. Whether or not you vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump doesn't make really, for most of us, a significant difference in what our day-to-day -day life looks like. That sounds broken. Yeah. Um, so we, we kind of now touched a little bit on the, the idea of the economic uh, function within um, these kind of autonomous zones and how it also is uh, embedded within that direct democracy. And we see that specifically with the cooperative models that the EZLN has formed within their borders. Economic cooperatives were formed in some indigenous villages beginning in the 1970s with assistance from the Catholic diocese and later the Maoists. These cooperatives became a core element of the EZLN's organizing strategy, and they have provided material support to the Zapatistas movement for more than two decades. Men and women, usually from separate cooperatives based on a gendered division of labor, men, for example, might have coffee or cattle cooperatives or collective cornfields. Some women's cooperatives, like vegetable gardens and chicken raising collectives, are geared towards local consumption, while others, such as artisan cooperatives, sell handwoven clothing and tapestries to external markets. The decision to form a women's cooperative is made at a woman's assembly. Participants in the assembly decide what type of cooperative they want, choose coordinators, and discuss how to organize the project. Once the EZLN became a well-known entity, it was easier to secure solidarity funding to form new cooperatives. The women's cooperatives generate resources that are reinvested back into the community. Before 1994, these resources were primarily used to support clandestine activities, such as feeding the insurgents in the mountains. 
After 1994, the cooperatives began to respond more to the economic needs in the villages. The income generated by the cooperatives might be used to pay for a cultural celebration, a political mobilization, to respond to emergencies, or to support community projects. We invested the money in a small pharmacy, said the Zapatista women from Olga Isabel. The government never gives us health care, and we don't have money to go to the city and buy expensive medicines. That's why we started this pharmacy, to help ourselves as a community by providing medicine at a low cost. Although these stores are Zapatista cooperatives, they function as regular businesses and are open to anyone in the community. Women's cooperatives also invest resources into new projects. For example, as the village of Morelia continued to grow, many of the young families left to form a new community. The collective vegetable garden and bakery in Morelia each donated several hundred pesos so that the women of this nearby village could form their own cooperative. Although the original purpose of the women's cooperative was to strengthen the local and regional economy, they are also a critical tool for organizing women within the Zapatista movement. We don't only do the work of the cooperative, said a group of Zapatista women from Olga Isabel. We make agreements and we organize ourselves more. We also talk about the organization. We share information, we talk about politics, and little by little, women start to participate more. The autonomous governments in Zapatista territory is parallel to but separate from the Mexican state and founded on the principle of mandar obediciendo, or to lead by obeying. We're not Spanish. <laughs> there is a sign at the entrance of each caracol that announces, you are in rebel Zapatista territory. Here the people lead and the government obeys. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that they put so much focus on bringing people into the democratic process, both locally in terms of within your community and also within your workplace. Uh, workplaces are considered equally to be spaces for democracy. And I think that's important because by democratizing the uh, workspace, we're efficiently allocating those resources to what we need instead of what's most profitable, which is why an area that's so poor can do so much as well. Um, they're working with no capital investment in an area that could barely grow enough food for those people, yet they're continuously expanding and enriching the lives of the people there. Right. And I just wanted to make a quick point. Um, with starting the podcast, my mindset on what government should do is, you know, sort of shifting a little bit because we're talking about these concepts and I'm starting to come into my own as I understand what I want and expect from government. But taking a look at what profit means, if your necessities are met, then everything after that becomes a profit. Um, so these people are investing in more profits by having their necessities met either easier or in a way that uh, produces more goods. Profits are unpaid wages. Right, exactly. The capitalist system has us look at profits as more money, but if your needs are met in this communal sense, then everything after that becomes profit. So that's why they're a Collective investing. profit right, as opposed to that money being sent to shareholders that have done nothing and done no labor that just get money for the sake of having invested money, money that they probably got from also investing money that they are reinvesting repeatedly and not paying taxes on because they're reinvesting. Right. It's the difference between a bank and a credit union. Yeah. So this points to a really important function of how business works in the EZLN. Uh, economic development across the entire region is built collectively using the cooperative model. Today, the most important co-ops are found in coffee production and artisanry, 
Mutwitz is the largest Zapatista coffee cooperative located in the Highlands region of San Juan de Libertad. It includes 600 families from 26 communities. Founded in 1997, Mutwitz provides high-grade organic shade-grown coffee, much of which is sold in the fair trade market. The region has proven that collectively, it can not only provide resilience in the face of overwhelming adversity, but that it can integrate itself within the global market when it is given the ability to self-determine its own future, while also being able to provide living wages for its citizens. Despite all of the technological disadvantages the region has, it's able to operate on a global market and compete with all of the multinationals across the globe. And I think that says a lot about the value of self-determination, even when facing overwhelming obstacles. The Zapatista autonomous government and economy consciously draws upon many elements of traditional indigenous structures and seeks to implement a system of direct democracy, where voices are heard in decision-making, and everyone can and should participate in community affairs. Some elements of governance that embody this principle and predate the Zapatistas include the community assembly, the system of cargos, meaning positions of leadership or authority, and the permanent consulta, a process of consultation with the people through community assemblies or other mechanisms. Community assemblies have historically been an important institution in Mayan villages, but were not inherently democratic. Assemblies became considerably more deliberative and participatory under the influence of the Catholic diocese and Maoist organizations of the 1970s. In Zapatista territory, decisions are made by an informal process of consensus, and no decision can be reached until everyone who wants to speak has spoken. All major decisions are made in an assembly, and the autonomous government is to implement those decisions. The regional assembly chooses members of the autonomous government, and assemblies can remove someone from their position of authority at any time. Cargos are the structure of traditional indigenous authorities. To hold a cargo or a position of authority is a way to offer service to one's community. The Spanish word for cargo also means weight or a burden, and the verb cargar means to carry. So to have a cargo is like shouldering a burden or carrying your share of the weight. While it is a position of power, it implies a financial sacrifice rather than a path to wealth. Historically, anyone holding a cargo was expected to sponsor religious festivals, which depleted any wealth he had managed to accumulate. By accepting a cargo, one gained prestige but became impoverished. On the one hand, this system tends to concentrate power in the health of wealthier community members since they are the most able to absorb this high cost. This kind of points to some issues we have today in our modern democracy, quote unquote, where we have people go into politics and we look at like Donald Trump, who pretty much bought his election. And we had Michael Bloomberg attempt to do the same thing. The role of a politician as a person of without wealth means that the only people that will run or can run are people with wealth. You know, one of the things I think people talk about a lot of times is term limits, which is one of those things I think that does sound really good in theory. Um, but in practice, one of the challenges is that rotating door where people, if you can only have one or two terms during those two terms, you do something for an industry. And when you leave, you've got a job waiting for you. Yeah, people getting propped up. Sure. Yeah. I'm not saying that people being in power like Mitch McConnell for 40 years is a good thing or Nancy Pelosi, who wants to be the, uh, uh, asked to be renominated as the house speaker, despite having been in Congress since before we were both born, you know, that's also a problem, but I'm not sure which one's worse. And uh, I think the root, when you say like, this comes back to this whole conversation of, you know, why 
our politics, despite being called a democracy and voting, sucks so badly. And it's because there's no direct relationship between us and those politicians. There's this very big bureaucratic thing that exists that's called the government, and we don't have access to it in the sense that the Zapatistas do. Right. So think about you can write a letter to your state senator or your state representative, um, and that's how you would get in touch with them. But have you ever had a sat down and had a conversation with them or anybody who is working with them about anything at all ever? It's, yeah, there's no direct accountability in the sense of if you don't, if you do this awful thing, I'm going to show up at your house and burn it down or you are going to lose your job and we're going to take the money that we paid you away. Like you can't do that. That's not how our economy and our politics is set up. Right. And politicians are insulated from it where to the point where they can turn being a politician into a career Without doing anything. Without actually being effectual at it. They're kind of like weathermen. Yeah. Um, so, the like, we talk about, oh, we need to do this, we need to do that. This will make the Senate more accountable. This will make the House more accountable. But at the end of the day, the the structural situation of how our government is designed is explicitly designed to insulate the government from the, the effects of direct democracy. We're not going to legislate away the problems of our democracy because it's inherent in the way our democracy is set up. Absolutely. Whereas they don't have this problem because they have this such direct sense of democracy, both uh, economically speaking and politically speaking. The autonomous government reflects several aspects of this system. And this is, again, a quote from uh, Hillary Klein's book. We don't go out and campaign like the politicians of the bad government. The people choose the person who they think will do the best job. We are very clear that we as authorities are providing a service to our communities. We are not thinking about receiving any kind of salary. Those elected do not nominate themselves or ask to be chosen, and the Zapatista authorities are not financially compensated in any way. As was the case for traditional Mayan authorities, being chosen as a member of the autonomous government is seen as a hardship as well as an honor. The authorities gain prestige and are respected by their community members, but they are also closely scrutinized by their peers and are, at times, subject to heavy criticism. Our communities have elected us to organize, said Eliza, a member of the Good Government Council from the Morelia region. To govern and to be governed, we are seeking a way of doing politics, a government which promotes the collective and communal interests of the people, a government which leads by obeying. The council is also the bridge between the Zapatistas and the people of the world. Each of the five caracols has a good government council made up of rotating members of the municipal councils of the autonomous municipalities in the region. Each rotating group stays in the caracol for a one- or two-week shift, during which time it constitutes the good government council. The length of time depends upon the particular caracol. The Zapatistas say that having so many members on the council in the frequent rotations uh, hold them accountable and act as a measure against possible corruption. Zapatista autonomous government combines indigenous customs, structures they inherited from other organizations and institutions, and the Zapatistas' own beliefs and practices. The Zapatistas bring an anti-capitalist analysis, a critique of corruption within the Mexican state, and a commitment to gender equality and the inclusion of women. In each caracol, the Good Government Council and the Honor and Justice Commission work together to resolve individual, family, community, and political disputes. The council has a wide range of responsibilities, whereas the Honor and Justice Commission, something like the judicial branch of the autonomous government, is specifically dedicated to mediating disputes, facilitating arguments, and determining punishment when wrongdoing has been committed. 
The Honor and Justice Commission is generally made up of indigenous elders recognizing their traditional role in resolving disputes and their moral authority with other members of the community. The autonomous justice system could loosely be characterized as transformative or restorative justice because it looks at problems and disputes in the context of the larger community or society, seeks to transform the attitudes or behavior of the person who committed wrongdoing, and focuses more on healing than imprisonment or punishment. When someone is considered to be at fault, the members of the Good Government Council or the Honor and Justice Commission often offer words of advice to ensure that the person understands what he or she did was wrong and to encourage them not to do it again. In most cases, they facilitate an agreement to resolve some type of dispute, but there may be a punitive element as well. The Council or the Honor and Justice Commission may determine who is at fault and impose disciplinary measures. Punishment usually involves making reparations to whoever was directly impacted by the wrongdoing or making amends to the community as a whole in the form of community service. There are jails in Zapatista communities, but people are rarely detained for more than a day or two. The most common use of the jails is to lock someone up for being drunk, and they usually are released from jail only once they are sober. One thing I do want to point out, uh, when we're talking about this, because I think it's very easy to imagine like the Zapatistas region is like a bunch of small villages, like very small villages. Currently in 2020, within the borders, if you want to call them borders of the EZLN, there's roughly 360,000 people living there. So this it's not something that we can just say, oh, it's because there's only 500 people there, or a couple thousand people in this area. This is a massive amount of people, much like Rojava, that has continued to succeed despite overwhelming opposition. When we say that this kind of punishment system, this kind of um, less punitive system, I guess you could say, this is not some pie-in-the-sky idea, but they're living it today where because you've taken out those economic hardships that exist in places like our country, the crime has gone down and they the few crimes that do exist are primarily personal issues and the role of imprisonment as a or the incarceral system has been pretty much eliminated. So basically effectively in this society here, stealing from others is effectively stealing from yourself. So there's no point to do it. Yeah, you have access you have to the same goods. You have everything you need, exactly. That drives down crime, and I'm sure there's probably, I'm not saying that the region is perfect, but I'm sure their crime rates are significantly less than here in the United States, despite being by probably GDP or any other marker, a third world country that would typically be exponentially higher for crime. And despite that, they're probably much lower. And also a look at at the punitive measures that are taken, reparations, that's pretty straightforward if you break somebody's you know window or whatever you have to pay for a new window that makes sense but also taking the time to to make sure the perpetrator understands what they did was wrong is important because that is part of the whole reformation that's supposed to happen in prison that we we call our reformation system they're supposed to go in and come out as contributing members of society and it actually just as the statistics show once you go to prison, you're probably going to be a repeat offender. So rather than making repeat offenders and repeat criminals, they're actually taking the time to reform this person and change their behavior so that they're not inclined to keep committing the same crime over and over again. Yeah, and that points to the fact that they do look at the um, the systemic reason why this person has committed the crime. So is this a personal issue or is there a mental health issue going on? 
or you know, do they need whatever it might be? Let's take a look at the conditions that caused this to happen instead of treating it like this thing that just happened and solving if there is a problem where they need whatever it might be that the community can provide those resources so that they don't have to commit those crimes in the future. When somebody gets let out of prison, what, what are they given? A criminal record and here's a handful of employers that might hire you because they hire convicts. And generally those jobs don't pay well. You put them back in the material conditions that they lived in before, which is why they were stealing or whatever they were doing, selling drugs. And you've given them more barriers while also living in the same conditions. You're not changing any of that. And that's why we have such a high recidivism rate. Mm-hmm. So th- their system is ver- is much more comprehensive and cohesive in terms of providing uh, the framework to successfully deal with criminality. So we're going to jump in quickly to ed- their education systems. The autonomous education system includes education promoters and an elementary school in each village as well as in some cases a local committee to promote education. Each community is responsible for building a school and providing economic support to the education promoters, often in the form of working their cornfields for them. An education commission coordinates the work in each autonomous municipality and throughout the region. In addition to the local elementary schools, there are now a number of regional high schools that function as boarding schools for children from surrounding villages. Before these regional high schools were established, It was rare for children from these indigenous communities to receive anything beyond an elementary school system. Further, the EZLN has focused on re-indigenizing their education system in the community. They've pushed out all the state-sponsored teachers and have brought in and trained up their own instructors to provide the education that they feel is important for their community. This idea reflects the EZLN's project of indigenous autonomy, the construction of an autonomous government economy, and health and education infrastructure all profoundly influenced by indigenous culture and traditions, which is a product of the Zapatistas' extraordinary level of organization, discipline, and determination. I think discipline is huge in there. Yeah, and that, like, I think what speaks to that is the fact that to drive interest in education, the supporters of education lead by doing in that they're going to work the cornfield so that kids can go to school. Their job isn't to just uh, pontificate to them about why it's important to go to school and that it's valuable and blah, 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 but they actually provide them with the resources so that they can actually go to school, not in just providing the the school space, but also in providing their family with the material needs that they need to allow their kids to go to school. Right. And the fact that we were talking about profits once your needs are met, once their needs were met, they had enough extra to go on to build secondary education, which I think requires a significant amount of discipline because that there's no way that happened overnight. Especially without um, some big block grants from a government or investment from the United States like we tend to do in other countries where we give them giant amounts of money and food and then we own them. Right. Very admirable. Yeah. So today, like I said, the Zapatistas a region is approximately 360,000 people. The Ezeon's approximately 40 autonomous municipalities are organized into five regions, which the Zapatistas call zones. Each region or zone is commonly referred to by the name of the five villages that house the Caracols, the seat of each regional autonomous government. The Zapatista construction of indigenous autonomy has meant that the rural villages in Chiapas have gained access to rudimentary health care and education, which were previously denied. They exercise self-determination through autonomous village and uh, regional governments and generate resources back into their communities through economic cooperatives that organize the production of goods. 
a subcommandante Marcos, the mysterious figurehead of the Zapatista army, is also a prolific writer and sets the tone of the movement for the world to see. In his best-known essay, Against the Great Defeat of the World, he highlights the need for autonomous space not just for the people of Chiapas, but a people across the world. He says that, of the seven pieces of the puzzle that make up the neoliberal economic system, in quote, the seven pieces will never fit together to make any sense. This lack of sense, this absurdity, is endemic to the new world order. There is no horizon. The world is burning. Every figure is trying to survive by concentrating on his own immediate need and survival. Claustrophobia, at its most extreme, is not caused by overcrowding, but by the lack of any continuity existing between one action and the next, which is close enough to be touching it. It is this which is hell. The culture in which we live is perhaps the most claustrophobic that has ever existed. In the culture of globalization, there is no glimpse of an elsewhere or an otherwise. The given is a prison. It is necessary to build a new world, a world capable of containing many worlds, capable of containing all worlds. The first step toward building an alternative world has to be the refusal of the world picture implemented on our minds and all the false promises used everywhere to justify and idealize the delinquent and insatiable need to sell. The act of resistance means not only refusing to accept the absurdity of the world picture offered to us, but in denouncing it. Really, what we're saying here is this idea of relocalizing a global network of municipalities in the model of what we're seeing in the Zapatista region. Again, earlier we talked a little bit about what it might look like to see direct democracy in small communities. And as the leader, Subcomandante Marcos, highlights this. And I think he, in reference to our first episode again, he references in that last piece, it's basically complex systems. They can't be rigid cookie cutter pieces that fit together neatly. Those systems have to be able to change with the current needs and subregions. But in order for those pieces to morph into what they need to be, the other regions are going to have to change with it into an overall complex system that works together. Yeah. And this idea of localizing things in terms of localizing democracy and economic models allows for local communities to specialize. And we see this kind of, uh, in, or at least that was the, the theory behind globalization, is that regions would be able to specialize in what they do best. Um, areas with high amounts of certain chemicals or whatever in the ground could focus on extracting those instead of doing things that the land isn't good for, which in theory makes sense, but that misses the cost of that transactional relationship. And it also dehumanizes the people that live in those regions by creating these massive linear systems which don't mimic that chaos of the natural systems that we live within right and that's the direct effect that i think most people see with globalization is the outsourcing of jobs basically they're chasing the cheap labor and telling us that oh we're just going to specialize this region for making whatever product or good it is yeah and that creates assembly lines and assembly lines don't pay well that's the whole point and breaking up complex systems into these little pieces one of the things that we talked about uh, in that first episode is that the the key feature of complex systems is that the sum is value more valuable than the pieces that comprise it. Right. And that's been lost. Right. Uh, and by relocalizing, we regain those things. Right. So we're breaking down those specialized pieces into the individual pieces and failing to put it back together into the whole sum. Yeah. Or the greater sum, even. So this was a very short discussion about the Zapatista movement. 
but one I think that was really important to have because it is a great model of what can be done and uh, offers us the opportunity to see that it, despite global interest in trying to hide that these things can be done, that they can. So we, we referenced primarily two different books, which we talked about earlier. We will include those in the links below. We highly recommend if you are interested, there's much more thorough details in there. But our goal is to show you that these things don't have to be lofty ideas, but they can be put into place and in, in, in practice and not just something that, oh, it'll last for six months and then kind of fall apart. But this autonomous zone has existed for over 25 years. And at this point, it doesn't seem to show any signs of slowing down. And it also seems to be getting better with time. Yeah, it shows you that with solidarity and with uh, ideas that are incepted um, from within, uh, people are capable of doing a lot of difficult things together. But uh, I think the one thing that I did point out again that I mentioned earlier was discipline. You have to have the discipline and the foresight to see that the future is better with what you're doing today. And I think these people have that. And I don't think they're going to lose sight of it anytime soon. So they'll probably be okay in the future. This has been, for me, a really interesting subject area and uh, very inspiring. In the next episode of this series, we're going to be talking about uh, Murray Bookchin's post-scarcity anarchism, which I think is a really good play. We started with talking about Kropotkin provided this idea of like what the future had to hold. And Bookchin said, this: the future is now, old man, and provided us. It's a series of essays. We're going to focus on two in particular, ecology and revolutionary thought and towards a liberatory technology, which provide us with the framework of what it means to be a post-scarcity society. So we talked a little bit in this episode about how the material conditions here are significantly different than what's going on in Chiapas and that we have material goods and resources that are available to us. That means we can do so much more. Not to say that they haven't done anything great, but that there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to make much better systems here. And Bookchin provides us a little bit of that framework. So we're going to talk about that next, and it'll be a, a more theory-focused area, and then we'll jump into Rojava, where uh, that's been, through Abdullah Ajalan, a, a model for what they've tried to accomplish there and uh, all of the good things they've been able to succeed in. So with that, we'll let you guys go. Thanks for listening to the Poor Pearls Almanac. And as always, see you next time. Bye, comrades.